to the Bear Marriage Podcast. I am Sheila Ray Gregoire from ToLoveHonorAndVacuum.com. And we here at Bear Marriage like to strip away all the stuff that is hindering marriages and get back to what God intended. So I am here with my daughter, Rebecca. Hello. And Rebecca Lindenbach is my co-author of The Great Sex Rescue, which launched just last week. Yes. And we are so excited. It's been a great week. There was a New York Times book review. It was wonderful. And they loved it. Yeah. It was like, they said that it should have been titled... Well, can I, I even say it? I don't know. I think I think that if you were to say it with the right intonation, then it would become inappropriate for the podcast. So we will we will link to it, which you can go check it out. But it's worth the read. It's quite funny. Yeah, they were very positive about it. It was included in a number of different books they were reviewing, including some BDSM ones. So but I loved kinda... that they included us under books that'll offer sexual freedom. Yeah, yeah. Like so... when they're doing the roundup of books in the current you know market that will offer sexual freedom, ours is the one for Christians. Yay! And speaking of freedom. On the blog, we are actually switching emphases for the next few weeks. Yes. So we have been talking about the Great Sex Rescue forever, and it's kind of been some heavy conversations. They've been important ones, Mm -hmm. and we've gotten so many great emails from people who have said, finally, I feel free. Again, Mm -hmm. freedom, which is wonderful. But I want to talk about something which I hope will be really uplifting, and of course, the Great Sex Rescue is going to come into it. Of course. But I want to encourage us to think about marriage in a little bit of a different way, and so I'm going to tell you a story. In 2012, when you were 17, Mm -hmm. we went on a Mediterranean cruise. Yes. And we spent some time in Italy. And then Keith and I spent some time there without you guys. Afterwards, Mm -hmm. we stayed behind. And it it was wonderful. Tons of fun. But we went into so many cathedrals and art galleries. Yeah, and we gorgeous. saw so much Renaissance art. It was just amazing. But when I came back, I had this kind of weird thought as I looked back on all the art we had seen, which is that a lot of it left me kind of empty. Mm-hmm. And what I'm about to say is not anti-Catholic. No, okay? no, no, not at all. <laughs> because I'm talking about Renaissance art. We were all the same then. Yeah, exactly. So, so this yeah. is before Reformation art. <laughs> this so, is our shared history. This is our shared history. <laughs> this is not an anti-Catholic thing. No, okay? no, no, not at um, all. What I noticed is that in all the paintings in which Jesus appeared, he tended to be doing three different things. Yeah. Either he was a baby. Yep. Or he was on the cross. Yes. Or he was rising in the air. Yes. Every now and then he might have been doing a miracle. Yep. Every now and then he was getting baptized and the dove was coming down onto his shoulder. But in general, he was either a baby or he was dead. (laughs) And there was very little in between. And as I got thinking about that, it seemed that Jesus didn't have a lot of emotion. You know, like the emotion was either he was dead, so we didn't have any emotion, or else he was in anguish, but you just didn't see this wide range of emotion. Whereas the apostles had emotion. Mm -hmm. They were often shown like doing neat things. Mary certainly had emotion, but Jesus really didn't. And I got thinking about this and I realized, you know, I wonder if too often we think of God without emotion. Or if the only emotion he's ever allowed to feel is this stoic anguish or disappointment or sadness. Mm-hmm. And I know I sometimes think of God like that. Oh, yeah. Sort of like God's a magazine cover. You know, six things you could be doing better. Yeah, exactly. Right? <laughs> Seven ways you're failing right now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, and, and yet what if that's not actually what God is like? Mm-hmm. You know, what if we actually serve a God who laughs? Yeah. Because think about what we know about who Jesus hung out with. He hung out with rough fishermen. Now, the closest that I come to that is my son-in-law's in in the military. (laughs) Not not your husband. No, no, uh, my brother-in-law. Yeah. 
And I know whenever the military guys are together, they laugh a lot. And the reason they laugh is that they're telling jokes. Yep, they're telling <laughs> jokes, they're poking fun, they're just kind of, you know, blowing off steam. Yeah, and they're laughing. And I'm sure that the fishermen laughed and yeah. told jokes. And Jesus was okay with that. Yep. And they actually enjoyed being with Jesus. If Jesus got upset every time someone told a joke, I don't think people would have liked being around him. No, I mean, who would like being around that person? No one. Right. And so, you know, Jesus is, is okay with people telling jokes. Jesus hung out and he had dinner with tax collectors and sinners. And in those days, dinner took a long time. Mm-hmm. It was like a hours long event. And I think that when we, when we emphasize this Jesus who suffers and Jesus who dies over the Jesus who sees and enjoys and who loves, that I think comes down to this idea that we have where the whole thing about being a Christian is about understanding how we're horrible people and trying to beat the horrible person out of ourselves Mm -hmm. instead of resting easy in God's grace. Yeah. And this is something that's a huge part of my story, you know, because I grew up really in the heavy evangelical um, culture context, which is in essence tells you, you are a worm Mm -hmm. who God can only stand to look at because he decided to sacrifice his son. And I'm like, now, obviously, we believe we needed the cross. We needed the crucifixion. We needed Mm -hmm. someone to cover our sin Mm -hmm. so that we could be, you know, in right standing with God. But when we minimize all of Jesus's life or the call of a Christian to simply be focused on how horrible people we are, we miss out on what it means to love God like a little child, right? We, Mm -hmm. We miss out on what it means to have faith like a child. Mm -hmm. And when I was really realizing this is even looking at my own son, I was saying this to mom as we were talking about the podcast, is I didn't really understand what it meant to love God like a child until I had one. Mm -hmm. Because you know what we do every night is we sit in this rocking chair and we read stories and for a good portion of it, he will just take your arm and he'll just play with the arm hair. (laughs) And there's no embarrassment and there's no thinking she's going to think this is weird or is she going to get mad? He's just like, oh, look, fuzzy. I'm Mm -hmm. going to play with this. I'm Mm going to try to pull some out. Mommy Mm. makes funny noises if I do that. You know, like there's (laughs) just... He's 16 months old. He's 16 months. Oh yeah, that's an important context. Yes. Yes, he's 16 months old. But he just, you know, is the same kid who every now and then will just walk over and stick his finger in your belly button. Just that... Oh, it's squishy. Like, yeah, exactly. Mommy's even more so because I've had a baby. (laughs) Yeah, no, but like just that utter and complete belief that you're just safe and you're just loved... And you mm-hmm. get to just explore and just have fun and just, mommy loves me and I'm going to pull out her arm hair and that's not going to change anything. Yeah. You know, I'm going to enjoy just giggling at mommy. I'm going to, you know, roll around on the floor and stick my tongue out. And I know that mommy's going to be looking at me and think, oh, I'm so cute. Yeah. I really do think if you're a parent, you want your kid to think that you think they're awesome. Now, you also want your kid to understand where they go wrong Mm -hmm. and where they hurt other people and where that was not an okay thing to do. Mm -hmm. But we don't want our kids to only think that we're always looking at them with disappointment. Yeah. It is important that my son knows that when he pokes the dog's eye, that makes mommy sad. Mm -hmm. And he knows that. And it makes the dog sad. (laughs) I don't think he cares about the dog, though. I think he only cares about mommy. Yeah. No, but that is an important part of parenting, but it's not the, that's not the entire relationship that just, me and my just, have. Just for clarification, their dog is five pounds. Yeah. <laughs> Alex, the dog does not pose a risk to Alex. No, not at all. He also has no teeth. <laughs> 
<laughs> Alex poses a risk to the dog. Just yeah. so none of you are worried yeah. about this. Yeah. Yeah. No, we, are, we are responsible. <laughs> That's it, is that the disappointment or the punishment or the, the frustration or the, the no, that wasn't okay... I don't want my son to ever think like that's our entire relationship. Mm -hmm. I want him to think of me as the mummy who likes to just laugh with me while I roll on the floor. Because I do think that Jesus laughed. You know, if he hung out with tax collectors and sinners, they were telling jokes. They were laughing. If he took little children up on his lap, Mm -hmm. he must have been smiling and laughing a lot at little kids. And so our God laughs. And when you read Romans 8.29 that we are predestined to be transformed into the likeness of Jesus. We often read that to mean that means that we are being transformed into holiness and selflessness. Yeah. And that's part of that it. That is definitely a big part of it. That, that, that is part of it, but it's not the whole thing. But it's also what do we think holiness looks like? Right, because the likeness of Jesus is someone who laughs and someone who takes joy in life mm-hmm. and enjoys what he can. Yeah. And I will say, we often like to say things where joy isn't the same thing as happiness, right? Mm -hmm. Joy is something bigger than happiness. But I also think that a big part of joy is positivity. Mm -hmm. Like you can say I'm content, but my life is horrible and think in your, and be constantly bogged down by all these horrible things. But I think that a lot of times we get into this idea where God is happy with me when I'm suffering because then I can learn how to be joyful. But yes. what if part of being more like Jesus is just being able to be joyful when things are good too? It's mm-hmm. not about always trying to seek out what's bad so that we can grow, mm-hmm. but it's also just about taste and see if the Lord is good. Happy are those who take refuge in yeah. Him. What I'm seeing in a lot of marriage advice is that when you suffer, <laughs> so when your marriage is difficult, this gives you a great opportunity to grow more like Jesus. Yeah, And so it almost seems like The more unhappy you are in marriage, the more Jesus will grow you into who he wants you to be. Yeah, it's like, ah, sure, you have this super easy, lovely, happy marriage, and you picked an awesome partner, and everything is going pretty easily for you because both of you are people who are already pretty Christ-like and sacrificial in your day-to-day life, but your marriage isn't as good as mine because mine is horrible, and so I have more sanctification that can come from it. Mm -hmm. And I know that sounds very extreme, but that kind of is the impression that I get from a lot of these books. It's like, I'm sorry, my marriage is pretty easy right now. Like, Mm -hmm. I know everything goes through seasons, but my marriage is not less able to be used by God because Connor and I are actually a pretty good team. Mm -hmm. Now... God can use suffering. Yes. God has used suffering in my life, and it's often in times of suffering that we learn how to cling to God the most. But you know what else God uses? Times of real happiness and joy. The truth is God uses everything. Yeah. Well, and also, (laughs) the whole idea of a marriage being the reason you're suffering. Why? Mm -hmm. Like, if your marriage is causing you to suffer, the holy thing is not to sit through and suffer. It's to fix it. Mm-hmm. It's to get into a situation where the marriage is not causing suffering. Yeah, and I think sometimes we put up with stuff we shouldn't put up with because we think, well, at least this is a vehicle for sanctification in my life. Yeah, um, because we picture Jesus as sad and on the cross. Yeah. And, and that's it. And that's a part of Jesus, but it's not the whole story. Yeah. And so then the more that we can empty ourselves, the more that we can show that we are selfless, the more we grow like Jesus. Mm-hmm. And while that's true, I also think that the more that we can make our relationship Relationships be ones that are abundant in love and joy, the more we are also like Jesus. And, yeah. and so I don't think that we have any special reward for suffering. Mm-hmm. I think that I think that God uses everything. And if you are in a difficult marriage, yes, God will use that. 
But also that does not mean you need to put up with it for the rest of mm-hmm. your life because God will be disappointed with you if mm-hmm. you aren't able to muscle through. And so I just want to take some of the, the rest of the weeks in this month and say, hey, how can we just be more joyful about marriage and, and not always talk about marriage like it's this huge slog that God wants to use in your life to make you better because mm-hmm. we all know marriage is so hard. And instead just say, hey, how can we just have more joy? How yeah. can we see marriage from the point of view of the God who laughs. Exactly. So that's what we want to look at to turn things around. Okay, we have a bunch of other things that we want to work through quickly on this podcast. Some things that people keep sending me, keep asking me about. Yep. And one of them, I think I've had about 50 people send me this story, the Missouri pastor. The Missouri pastor. The Missouri. The pastor from Missouri. Who said, hey ladies, you better be a trophy wife. Yeah or else he's not going to want to be with you. You know, part of being a good wife is looking attractive. And he talked about a husband he knew who had a divorce weight. We're above that. He would divorce her. And he actually read an anecdote from the book, His Needs, Her Needs, which we included in The Great Sex Rescue. Yes, we did. (laughs) As an example of a problem. Yes. It's talked about how being married to a a woman who has gained a lot of weight is like a prison sentence. Yeah, which is just horrific. And frankly... We don't want to comment on this too much. We're just commenting on it so that people will stop sending it to us. Well, we're, we're, we're glad. We, yes, we shouldn't say that no, because yeah. <laughs> some of the best stuff I talk about is sent oh my to gosh, me by yes. readers. So I yes. actually really enjoy readers sending yes. me stuff. It's just that like every reader in the world just, has sent me this because yes, the everybody's issue, appalled. The issue is not sending us this. It's that, you know, like we can't find other messages because there are so many messages. Because like, <laughs> this is really resonating. And I yeah. guess what I wanted, wanted to comment, I, d- I don't want to comment on the subject of what he said because no. it was gross we've already no. summarized it and frankly we don't need to spread it anymore i think he's still at his church oh no he's on leave entirely now i guess i think so so that's good i guess they just got so much bad press which is wonderful but you know what i find so interesting about this is that a lot of people said you know we were taking things out of context in the great sex rescue <laughs> and it really wasn't that big of a deal and then the very week that our book launches <laughs> This thing hits the news where a guy used the, the very anecdote that we did. And the point that we were making is that there's such a double standard yeah. in Christian books because well, there's so also, much emphasis on women having to stay good looking. Yeah. And it's just, it's just really rotten. And also it's important to realize that when these men are saying things like women have to stay in a certain weight range in order to even be acceptable, that's just also a problem, obviously. Mm-hmm. And we do agree that everyone should try to be healthy. Yeah, absolutely. That's a way to love your spouse. But the thing is, it's not women. It is both of you together. (laughs) And whenever we make it a gendered thing, like this is something that she owes him, but he can be whatever size he wants, doesn't matter. That's when problems really start. And when we talk about it solely in terms of appearance rather than health, that's also where there's yeah. big problems. When we talk about it in terms of once you're not attractive enough anymore, that's a problem for me. It's like, ah, you know, you married someone who wasn't going to be 23 your whole life, so deal mm-hmm. with that. We thought that that news story was really sad, and yeah. I really feel badly for the people in the pews. And that's another yeah. thing that we want to say, is part of the purpose for the Great Sex Rescue is to help women identify, and men actually, identify yeah. when what they're being told just isn't true. Yeah, and that was one of the things that was encouraging. So now I joked about, ah, stop sending it to us. But <laughs> don't stop sending it to us. One of the things that is so encouraging whenever this kind of thing happens is seeing how many people 
notice it even without us saying anything Mm -hmm. and who do send it to us and say this is so horrible have you seen this yeah that actually is encouraging to us Mm -hmm. um so I know I joked about it but just to make it very clear it was a joke like we said in last week's podcast this is such a a a lonely job to call stuff out and to say you know in essence say the emperor has no clothes Mm -hmm. right like hi uh we shouldn't make horrible derogatory marks to women because they aren't within five pounds of their marriage weight yeah you know like that should not have to be said but here we are yeah. right but the fact that all of you saw it mm-hmm. and said this isn't okay and spoke up on social media spoke up with your friends spoke up in the comment section wherever you saw it like that's amazing and that's what we need yeah whenever you see something that smells funny call it out because there might be like 10 other people who are reading that and saying i don't know and just no one else has said anything publicly because it fits with the status quo but even more importantly than that if it's your pastor Yes. Call it out. Because that's where things get dicey, right? Is when it's not on social media, but it's actually your church. Like, what about the women who were sitting in those pews? We don't know how this blew up. Apparently, I think someone just saw the video that was posted on Facebook or something, but it might not even have been a parishioner who blew this thing up. They just may have seen the video. Maybe all the women sitting in there, I don't know what they were thinking. Yeah. But I'm sure a lot of them were very hurt. But when you're sitting in a pew, hearing from your pastor that you have a relationship with, Mm -hmm. it's easy to feel like I'm the one with the problem if I disagree. Totally. Because they're the ones with the the training. That's my pastor. He's my spiritual authority. So I need to listen to him. And what we want to say is that we found that so many evangelical books spread teachings that are harmful. Mm -hmm. It is time for us to be allowed to exercise discernment. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And if something doesn't look like Jesus... You don't have to listen to it. Yes, exactly. And I do want to say, I I know that it's really scary to actually call people out in person. And if that's uh, really just too much, you don't have to. But you know what you can do? You can just literally get up and leave. Mm -hmm. People might think that you're taking a bathroom break, Mm -hmm. you know, but just don't come back. Mm -hmm. Just stand in the sanctuary and, you know, make yourself coffee. Yep. And then if anyone comes out, say, oh, I'm sorry, I, I just have a problem with what he's saying. You you don't even need to give any more explanation. But just if we make it normal that people don't have to be okay with horrible things being said from the pulpit, I think that'll go a long way. Yeah, or from Bible study group or wherever. Yeah, anywhere. Just remember you're allowed to exercise discernment. Yes. Okay, quick reader question because we like to read a question every podcast. Yes. And we've been talking about seeing a God who laughs and isn't as angry at us and having discernment in church. And this one kind of relates to both. It does. Okay, do you want me to read it or do you want to read it? Uh, You can read it. Okay. So she says, I'm going to summarize a little bit. She got married a year ago and they found that she had hormonal problems, specifically endometriosis, which were leaving her in severe crippling pain. Her husband's been really supportive, but she's felt really alone. And that's because the church culture took a very dim view of any form of birth control, which is the main treatment for endometriosis and the one that they decided to use. Yeah. She's happy to say that it's helped a lot and she's hardly ever in pain after sex anymore, which is great. But she feels like she can't tell anyone about her condition because they would disapprove of her choice to use hormonal birth control and not be concerned about the pain that she's had. Hmm. It's hard to not see my fellow Christians as a supportive group who I can tell about my suffering and ask for prayer or help. 
Can you offer tips to the church for how to be more understanding of women in this kind of situation? I wish there were more Christians who would just be listening ears rather than those who would judge a very private decision like birth control, especially for a medical reason totally unrelated to trying not to have kids yet. Yeah, completely. And we really do need to call this something other than birth control. Yeah, because that's not birth control. That's a treatment strategy. And I do want to say that, like, you know, I... I, and I'll say this personally, I really did struggle with the idea, do I use hormonal birth control? Do I not? Like, mm-hmm. what's the ethical reasons? And frankly, did I didn't know this until recently, but when you are breastfeeding, mm-hmm. the same things happen in your body as what happens when you're on hormonal birth control. Mm-hmm. Like, you don't really create as much of the lining, so eggs can't implant as easily. Mm-hmm. Um, so even if you uh, do ovulate, it's still less likely to implant and stuff. So, like, it's, it's, it's not as black and white as people who are really worried about the about like you know in essence it just making it so that you can't get pregnant through not implanting not mm-hmm. through like preventing ovulation make it sound right. but also frankly there's no evidence that it doesn't make you ovulate and there's a lot of evidence that suggests that it it does actually stop ovulation yeah yeah now i mean in terms of when we're talking just about birth control you know, I do have some concerns just because so many people have told me the pill wrecks their libido. Well, and for me personally, the reason I'm not on the pill is because it makes me incredibly depressed. Yeah. Incredibly anxious and depressed. And, and we do need to say yeah. as well that there's more than one kind of pill. So even saying the pill is a misnomer because yeah. there's multiple And I will different... say, on every single pill I've ever been on, yes. I have been anxious and depressed. Um, <laughs> but you know what? Some people swear by it. Yeah. And some people don't. But, but regardless, what she's saying is forget the whole birth control thing. Exactly. I needed to be on this for medical reasons. Exactly. Exactly. And, and that's valid. Well, and people. to me, I'm like, thank goodness we live in a day where she has something that helps her through this pain. Yeah. But, you know, if this were anything else, like if she had to take thyroid medication, yeah. nobody would be upset about it. But yeah. it's like because it's about your uterus, somehow we get upset. And this to me is very much, you know, the God who's always disappointed in us. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. This is not the God who bundles you up and says you have been in such pain for so long and you don't have to do that right so I think I think we just need to understand that it's really easy to jump as as you know as religious people it's really easy to jump to our what do I believe black or white thinking what can I prove with the bible Mm -hmm. and we forget about the compassion piece yeah and we forget about the fact that we are a religion that deals with people not tokens of our belief system, right? Like we don't want to put someone up as, well, this person had endometriosis. She didn't choose any birth control. She suffered through for the Lord. Yeah. Like, yeah. So you don't get brownie points for not helping yourself. Yeah. So we just need to see this very differently. And I I would encourage all of us as women to be far more giving and, and gracious to other people's choices about birth control in general. Yeah. But then this isn't even about that. No, this it's is really about not. health. And just because something affects someone's uterus or hormones does not mean that they're making some choice about sex. Yeah. Like, <laughs> we need to understand the uterus is a part of the body, and sometimes stuff can go wrong with it, mm-hmm. and it just needs some help. And that has nothing to do with all of the stuff that we often associate with it. And so we we really need to give, give our friends a break. And if you're in a church where you would be judged for something like this, I don't know, maybe think about whether that's really a a healthy church for you. Yeah. I I do think it's fair to say that if you're not able to get medical treatment for a condition that's causing you extreme pain without extreme judgment, 
Mm-hmm. That's concerning. Because then mm-hmm. what happens if you have something else that you need to go to the church for that you need them to not be judgmental of? Yeah. You know, what happens if you and your your marriage is struggling or if you have kids and you suffer with severe postpartum depression and you go for support, are you really going to get support or should you just really believe yeah. more? Yeah. Right? Like you have to, like these kinds of things do tend to go hand in hand in these kinds of circles. So I would, I would just be very careful and find somewhere that is a safe place. Cause yeah, I'm reading lots. a great book right now called A Church Called Tov by, yep. by Scott McLean. Everyone's reading Berenger. that great book right now. Yeah. And, uh, and I think that's a good one to read to figure out if your church is toxic or not. So we will leave that at that. Yep. We have brought my husband Keith onto the podcast with us. Hey, everybody. And we need to address the research question again. Hmm. So last did, did week... Did you guys do some research? <laughs> <laughs> so for our book, The Great Sex Rescue, we surveyed 20,000 women. We looked at marital and sexual satisfaction and how different evangelical teachings affect marital and sexual satisfaction. And last week we told you what some of the common criticisms that we're getting are from people who don't like our book. Yes. It, and I will say, people who don't even know our methodology... Yes, mm-hmm. who don't know our methodology. So they're they're accusing us of a lot of stuff that it wasn't even possible for us to do, which is yeah. it, it, which is kind of funny. We will put a link in the podcast post to last week's podcast where we did go over this a lot. We don't want to rehash this nope. again. One quick thing that we do want to say though is that we are getting accused of being biased and having a biased yes. sample. Yes. Which we find kind of laughable because, because it really to me it just shows a lot of ignorance. Because in order to do an odds ratio analysis, by definition, you have to have comparison groups. So they're saying it's just all women who all believe the same way. It's a bunch of angry hormonal women who don't like our books. Yeah. Or it's, or it's a bunch of women who all came from Sheila's blog. Yeah. Who all, who all agree with Sheila. Mm -hmm. Right. And the thing is that if everyone agrees, we would have no comparison group. Yeah. Yes. And and that just shows this fundamental misunderstanding of the of like a basic odds ratio analysis. Yes. Every survey has some level of bias. The Canadian census has a level of bias because the mm-hmm. kinds of people who fill out the census in general are of a certain demographic versus others. Mm-hmm. Even a government census yes. has some bias. The question is whether or not the bias calls into question the results of the survey. Yeah. And the bias that they're saying makes it impossible for us to even find any differences. And we did find differences. Yeah. Because what we were doing again was we were saying, okay, if you believe that all men struggle with lust is every man's battle, how does that affect your sex life? And in order to figure that out, we had to have people who believed it and people who didn't. And not (laughs) only that, we had to have a big enough group of people who didn't versus who did, mm-hmm. that we could know that our findings, our odds ratios were not simply due to chance. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, we had to have a big enough one. And we will say we did not report anything in the book that was not incredibly statistically significant. Yeah. yeah. But what we were what we were saying though is we got all these people who are trying to discount our survey for all sorts of different reasons who have no clue what they're talking about. Because right. frankly, again, they're showing they don't understand what odds ratios even mean. Mm-hmm. And they don't know our methodology. And, and they don't understand statistical significance. No. Right? Yeah. Because that's A huge thing. Yeah, exactly. And so what's happening is people are saying this, and we just wanted to ask, okay, so why are you trying to discount our survey? Because our survey found that some pretty big teachings harm marriages. Yeah. So if you're trying to discount our survey, which one of these teachings do you want to hold on to? Yeah, we had five big findings. Yeah. We had more than that, but we had five big, big findings. The first is simply that we have a 47-point orgasm gap. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I will say that is totally in line with other research. 
That yep. is completely within the normal range. Yes. So we, so that gives us some external validation as well. So other peer reviewed surveys, for instance, find that 95 to 96% of men say they almost always or always orgasm. Whereas we found only 48% of women said the same thing. So yep. we have roughly a 47 point orgasm gap. That's finding number one. Mm-hmm. Finding number two is that the idea that boys will push your sexual boundaries has a negative impact. Yeah, the idea that girls have to be the gatekeeper, that boys are the accelerator, girls are the, are the brakes. <laughs> you know, this has profound impacts later in marriage. The idea that all men struggle with lust, it's every man's battle. Yep, that really just destroys a lot of aspects of marital and sexual satisfaction. And it destroys it even if they only heard it and they don't even believe it. Yes. That's what's interesting. Yes. A woman is obligated to have sex with her husband uh, yep. whenever he wants it. Yep, exactly. Bad uh, stuff. Bad stuff happens. And that, hey, ladies, if you don't want them to watch porn, you have to have sex with them. You have to have sex with them. So So if you're saying you don't like our survey, then what you're really saying is we don't agree that those teachings are bad. Yeah. Or we don't care that there's an orgasm gap. Exactly. So either, well, we shouldn't be focusing on women's orgasm anyway, or, well, you know, all boys are little rapists in the making, so you can't really change that. Or else it's, yeah, your husband's never going to want to only have eyes for you ever, and you're constantly going to be second rate to what he really wants. Or it's going to be, you know, put out more so that he doesn't go to what he really wants and he settles for you instead. Or it's, you know, consent, sexual autonomy, we don't need none of that here. We got a wedding ring. So uh, marital rape doesn't really exist and you should just have sex whenever he wants it regardless of how you're feeling. And the thing is your book doesn't just bash the No, of course not. And I'm being facetious. Your book says things that are very positive. Like I was really overwhelmed by, for instance, the obligation sex message. Yeah. Um, I was overwhelmed by the number of women who in your focus groups talked with their husbands and said, hey, I bought this idea that I have to have sex with you or you're going to watch porn or I have to have sex with you because I'm married to you now, so it's it's essential that I do that. And it, it's not really something I feel I'm doing freely. And their husbands freaked out I and know. said, I don't think that. I want you to have sex with me because you want to have sex with me. I want this to be something that we both enjoy. Mm-hmm. And they were like, are you kidding? Like, I didn't realize that. So your book is very positive. It's saying, mm-hmm. hey, let's get these teachings, let's put them aside, and let's just enjoy being with each other and loving each other and and building our relationship together. It's not just about bashing old teachings. It it is about putting those Mm -hmm. teachings to rest, but it's about having much more healthy, let's go forward in a good way kind of teachings. Mm -hmm. And why would people want to resist that? I don't understand. To me, the whole book is just about that forgetting what is behind and straying towards what is Mm -hmm. ahead, right? Like that whole mentality of the Christian faith where it's when we have things that are wrong and bad in our past, whether it's, you know, past sin or, you know, like harmful beliefs even, I think it all applies where mm-hmm. we forget what is behind, we strain towards what is ahead, remembering that, you know, Christ is the prize that calls us heavenward, mm-hmm. you know? And so I think that that's what we just need to remember here. And so if people don't, if people are trying to discount our survey, then you just got to ask, why? Yeah. Why are you threatened by a survey that says women should have consent? Women should orgasm. <laughs> Boys should respect the need for consent. And also that, you know what, marriages should be faithful and that your wife's vagina should not be the only thing holding you back from another woman. Those are the kinds of things we're saying is that like, you know, marriage is supposed to be this mutual consensual. Mm. I just want to really emphasize that one. (laughs) uh, Yeah. But there's, there's this whole idea of what marriage could be and Yeah, we have to call out the people who have worked against that. Yeah, so I think what's happening is that uh, several of the authors that we have critiqued their books 
have been saying, oh, but their their survey was badly done. Yeah. When they don't know our methodology and they have no idea what they're talking about, yeah. really. We do have a link to our methods page, which we will yeah. put in the podcast description so you can go read that along with our FAQs. But I, I do think it's kind of funny because I think they think that by discounting our survey, they can discount our book. But really, by discounting our survey, they're showing what they really stand for. Yeah, exactly. If they agree with our survey, then there's no reason to try to discount it. Yeah, I think what they're upset about is that what we found when we looked at this survey, we saw the results, we saw which beliefs were harmful, we looked at other peer-reviewed studies, saw what was harmful, and then we started looking at all these books, and we found those harmful teachings in these books. And it's uncomfortable to be called out for having caused harm. It Mm -hmm. just is. And you know, I've actually been feeling quite... I don't know what the right word is, but I've been feeling a lot of compassion for some of these authors this Mm -hmm. week because I can't imagine what that's like, like to hear that what you've been teaching has caused harm. Yeah. And I've, I've been praying a lot that God will show compassion on them and will bring someone into their life that will just help them understand that we still do serve that God who laughs. Yeah. Right. That he still is loving and just very accepting of them. But that doesn't take away the harm they've done. And that's not my role to show compassion. We were called to write this book. (laughs) Our fight will always be for the sheep. Yep. You know, and a lot of these teachers shifted from sheep into wolves in sheep's clothing because they have heard again and again that what they have written has caused harm. And instead of addressing it, instead of changing what they said, instead of issuing public statements, instead of working hard to undo what they have done, Mm -hmm. they've doubled down. And I think that that's, that's what's our job is our job is to give the sheep the ability to say this person isn't safe. So it might be someone else's job to come alongside those, those people who have done the harm and say, you have screwed up. Mm -hmm. You have made a mistake here. That is not your whole story, Mm -hmm. but you are still responsible for it Mm -hmm. and you need to address it. Yeah. And I hope someone does that. I hope someone... But even in that, God is still... God still loves you yeah, totally. and God still rejoices over you with singing. Yes, yeah. exactly. But that does not discount the harm that is done and that's our yeah. job. Yeah. Okay, so we want to turn to another question, another big issue. So let's take this from a bit of a different angle. And this is, this is a conversation that I want to have a bigger conversation here is, you know, the pushback we often get is, but how can you discount a book just because it's harmed some people when it's helped so many? Mm-hmm. And so I, I want to explore how does a book actually help? Like philosophically, how does a book help people? And I was thinking about this and I think there's a couple of different ways. One is if a book truly says something new mm-hmm. that is really important. I would put a book like Boundaries by Henry Cloud and John Townsend in that category. I think yep. that was a book that really helped me mm-hmm. because it said something totally new. It said, hey, you know, being a Christian doesn't mean being a pushover. Yeah. <laughs> like, like being a Christian, you still have to, you still get to stand up for what is right and boundaries are important. I don't know. Is there any book that's really helped you guys that has said something new? or? Well, I really like The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Yeah. I thought that was very good. Had a lot of really good information that mm-hmm. wasn't said elsewhere before. Now mm-hmm. it's now it's kind of in the water, but it's yeah. it totally in the 90s. At the time. In the 90s, yeah. It's yeah. what made us get rid of our TV. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, at the time. And I think another thing is like a book can be really helpful if it just teaches you something that you didn't have a lot of other ways of learning. Yeah. You know, so um, Gift of Sex by the Penners, for mm-hmm. instance. Great book on sex, scored 47 out of 48 on our rubric. It was one of the 13 books that we analyzed. Yep. Really strong book. 
on sex. Really like that one. I think The Good Girl's Guide to Great Sex falls under that category too, that it's, you know, a very helpful one on teaching stuff. Something like yeah. that. That can be helpful if it's if you if it's something you need to learn. And I think another way a book can be helpful is if it's written in an accessible way or by someone that people wouldn't have listened to otherwise. Like the perfect example to me is Terry Crews. Mm -hmm. I don't All know stuff he's doing on porn. I don't know if he's actually written a book. If not, he should. Yes. Yeah. But like, you know, Terry loves yogurt. We all know that. And Terry hates porn. Yes. <laughs> right? And like And toxic masculinity. And toxic yeah. masculinity. And Terry Crews has just been such an amazing Terry is not saying anything new. Yeah. Like, yeah. I don't think he's saying anything that people have not said before. Yeah. But he's saying it to groups of people who would only hear it from Terry Crews. Yeah. Yeah, which is awesome. I think he's amazing. Yeah, and so I think there's a lot of room for people like that, you know, to speak in, and I just I just so respect him, and Terry, we love you. Yes, <laughs> yes, I don't love yogurt, but we love you. I love um, you. I love yeah. you. <laughs> so, like, as I was thinking about it, those are sort of the big ways that I see that a book can help. Yeah. Now, what if you find that a book harms, but a lot of people say, but that book really helped me. Mm -hmm. And here's where I have a theory. Okay. <laughs> okay. What's your theory? I have a theory that what if the book helped because any book you read in that situation about marriage would have helped? Because <laughs> yeah. what if it's the process of actually reading a marriage yeah. book? Yeah that is doing the helping rather than the book itself. Well, it's also why we, we do find that, you know, there are good therapists and there are math therapists, <laughs> mm -hmm. but going to therapy helps. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Like there, there are studies that show that, you know, therapy, like who your therapist is definitely impacts mm -hmm. the mm -hmm. extent to which it helps. But at some point, just talking to someone yeah. and getting the basics of like cognitive behavioral therapy will help you even if you don't have a great yeah. therapist. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, even more than that, in medicine, mm -hmm. when they're putting a new drug in the market, there's always, you know, they do what are called placebo-controlled, randomized, double-blind trials. Yeah. There's a bunch of people, and some of them are getting the new medicine, and some people are basically getting a sugar pill. Yeah. Like, yeah. like they're getting a nothing pill. Mm -hmm. And the thing is that in the nothing pill group, some get better. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> right? It's, it's not a small number either, too. Like, I mean, no. if you do a new blood pressure medication, and it works... You have to show that it did better than a dummy pill. Yeah. Right. Right? Because the dummy pill group will get better. Yeah. So just by doing something, by doing anything, yeah. some people are going to get better. That's just the way things work. Yeah, I know. I know that uh, Katie, when she was little and got all those migraines, we you stopped letting her, like we, we had to ration yeah. the number of Advil she could take as you were worried she was going to get a, like just a, an ulcer. An ulcer, yeah. exactly. And so yeah. Katie would just pretend to take an Advil pill. <laughs> and it would help her headache get better, yeah. you know, because her, yeah. her body remembered what it was, but she wasn't actually getting any of the drug. Yeah. And so, I, you know, if your marriage, if you want to work on your marriage, if you're like, you know, I really want to invest in my marriage. And so I'm going to take the time to read this book. Yeah. And you mm -hmm. do it with your partner who yeah. also is invested in your marriage. <laughs> the book could have been like The Adventures of Winnie the Pooh. And like, <laughs> so is that what you're saying? <laughs> well, I think, I mean, most marriage books, even the ones that, that we found cause harm, they also do. I mean, pretty much yeah. every marriage yeah. book encourages people to be less selfish yeah, and to, to think of your spouse more. and to communicate more. So even if there are some of the harmful teachings we've talked about, you know, it still does tell people to be selfless. And yeah, yeah. And those are good things. Mm -hmm. yeah. But the difference is, you know, it's the idea of if everyone is saying the same mundane kind of five pieces of advice and the way that you're kind of different is that you have teachings that harm, <laughs> that's not a great way to stand out. For instance, a really good example that comes to mind for me mm -hmm. is the book Love and Respect. 
Okay. okay. So when we ever, whenever we talk about love and respect, the two things that people say really help them are the idea of like, you know, husbands and wives sometimes see things differently. They help pink and blue glasses idea, right? Mm-hmm. right? You're just, you're, you're looking at it with pink lenses, right? And then what a lot of couples say they do is figure out what are my lenses, what is my spouse's lenses. And then when they get into an argument, you can talk about, okay, I'm just seeing it from a different point of view. That's perfectly fine. Also is you know, pretty generic marriage advice. Well, yeah. I mean, the book, a great book that we thoroughly recommend is the book, How We Love. Yeah. Mm. And that's the entire thing is looking at your attachment style. And that's the lens that you see the world yeah. through, right? By, yeah. by the so, Yerkovich's amazing yeah. book. And this because is, yeah. because that's the thing too, is it's not just a gender thing. No, it's not. To make it purely a male-female thing is yeah. just crazy. But, but, but I'm just trying to give examples of things that have helped people okay? right. yes. in yeah. love and respect. Yeah. So that's one that's really helped people. But again, it's kind of generic marriage yeah. advice. But the other thing that they always say is the, the idea of the crazy cycle of yeah. like you do something mean and then someone else does something mean in retaliation. At some point, one of you has to just start being nice. Yeah. Right. You know, that's everywhere. Mm-hmm. That's in parenting advice. It's in workplace um, negotiations. It's in just general interpersonal yeah. con- Like I dealt with that in my interpersonal conflict resolution class in university. Gottman's been talking about that for yeah. a long time. So it's no surprise that reading that in that book helps people exactly. because when they read it in other books, yeah, it, it helps, helps them helps. there too. Yeah. Yeah. The difference is that love and respect also has this whole paradigm of the idea that, you know, women and men need to relate to each other differently. And they do so in a way where women apparently don't need sex in the way that men do. Because remember, he does say if your husband is typical, he has a need you don't have. The thing that bugged me was in, in the appendix where he talks about the workaholic husband. Yeah. And he says to the woman that you should say something to him once quietly, and then if he doesn't respond, wait 10 to 20 days before you speak to him again. Yeah. I mean, to me, I would... That is just ridiculous. As a yeah. woman, I would never want to be in a relationship where I had to be a scared to talk to somebody for 10 to 20 days about mm-hmm. an issue that was that important. Yeah. It doesn't make any sense. And yeah. so if the way that your book is different than other books mm-hmm. is that, in essence, you tell women that they, sex isn't for them. Yeah. You know, and, and you also tell them you're not really allowed to speak your mind. Whether or not they meant to say that, yeah, that right. is what a lot of people are reading from it. Yeah. That's why we say these books do more harm than good. Because... Yeah. The good that they do is just kind of out in the water. They're not yeah. adding to the conversation. They might spin it in a different way, right? Instead of saying it's attachment styles or instead of saying it's just, you know, different experiences color our perspective, they say blue and pink lenses, which is cute. Yeah, and it's a nice yeah. visual image. Exactly. Mm-hmm. It's it's helpful. Easy, easy to remember. Yeah, and that is a very effective mode of communication. And if they say, you know, the whole crazy cycle idea, you know, like yeah. that may have helped people. But it's already out there. And so if the things that you're doing well on, everyone else is doing well on. And it's just the things that make you different are the things that hurt people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's that's where we, we, we are concerned. And that's where I think uh, we need to recognize as a Christian culture mm-hmm. that you don't get to just do something that hurts people because you also put in the mandatory positives. Yes, because anybody like it's, if, like all the people who say love and respect help them had they read a different marriage book. I just wonder if it would have helped them too. If it would have helped yeah. them as well, yeah. and that and that's really the issue, right? We have a story that we want to tell you about thalidomide, the drug thalidomide, which was out in the 1950s. It was done by a West German company. It ended up being sold in Britain under dozens of different companies with different names. Mm-hmm. Um, and originally it had all kinds of different uses, but one of the uses was for nausea during pregnancy. Yeah. 
The reason that thalidomide went so big is that they couldn't find a lethal dose. They gave yeah. mice all kinds of thalidomide and no mice ever died. So they decided this must be a really safe drug. Exactly. What they found, however, mm-hmm. was that it caused, if you took it between days 20 and 37 after conception, it could cause horrendous birth defects, mm-hmm. missing limbs, deafness, blindness, all kinds of things. I actually knew a guy who um, was missing his arms due mm-hmm. to thalidomide when I was at um, Bible college in England. And it was so cool because he could actually count change with his toes. Yeah, <laughs> He carried his money in his shoes and he could, anyway, it was amazing. He could drive with his feet. It was really cool. But anyway, um, but thalidomide did horrible, horrible damage. Mm. I read a history of thalidomide and just copied some of the things that I want to, I want to read to you because I think that they relate. So it says in 1958, thalidomide was produced in the United Kingdom by the distillers company Biochemicals Limited under the brand names Distival, Tensival, Valgrain, and Asmaval. Their advertisements claimed that Distival can be given with complete safety to pregnant women and nursing mothers without adverse effect on mother or child. So they made this claim, but they had never checked. Mm. Yeah, they They hadn't actually done any studies. yeah, Yeah, they had no evidence for that claim. How often do we hear that? Yeah. About Christian books. Yeah. yeah. This is God's way, so it will work. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. Exactly. We can, and that's exactly it. What they said is it doesn't kill mice, so it must be safe. What we say is we can find one verse in scripture that seems to support this on the surface, so therefore it must be right. It's the same thing. Then, in November of 1961, the first article appeared in the Lancet explaining the problems with um, thalidomide. Shortly thereafter, it was taken off the market, which was difficult because it went under so many different names exactly. and they had to trace it all down. The UK government had to do awareness campaigns about this because women were giving their extra pills to sisters and friends. Exactly. And so think about all the books on our shelves that Mm -hmm. all have different names, Mm -hmm. but all have the same harmful teachings. Mm -hmm. And think about your average book study at your church. What are you going to be reading? Yeah, because a lot of women took thalidomide with no ill effects. Exactly. In fact, for many women, it helped them. It cured the nausea. And so they were like, oh, you're feeling nauseous? This is a miracle drug. This is a miracle drug. Here you go. And so they gave it to their sisters. They gave it to their friends. And then their sisters and friends had babies with birth defects. And the thing is, when when you find a book helpful... And you recommend that book without realizing that it's harmful. You don't know what situation your sister or your friend are yeah. in. You know, you might you might be married to a guy that's really great. Mm-hmm. And so advice like you read in Love and Respect isn't that bad. Yep. But if you're married to a guy who isn't great, then that book could do a lot of harm. Yep. It can be devastating. And you've had many women tell you. That that's exactly what happened to them. Yeah. Yeah. Especially since we've had lots of women say, I was recommended this book by someone who it helped. And for me, it led to horrible outcomes. Yeah. And it's not just love and respect. I no, mean, I no, shared, totally. I shared on the podcast a while ago, what happened when I read the act of marriage yeah. before we got married. Like it's, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like it's, it's just a lot of these books that we found were harmful. They harm some people. Mm-hmm. And, and we got to keep in mind that just because it didn't harm you doesn't mean it's not going to harm others. Now, are you getting to the intent part of things at some point? No, but you can talk about that. Because one of the things I want to say is that you're getting pushback that, of course, these authors didn't mean to cause harm. Mm-hmm. As if as if your point is that you think that these people went out intentionally out of their way to cause harm to no. women. Mm-hmm. No one thinks that. The, the very beginning of your book says, we don't think these authors intended to harm. You, you give them the benefit of the doubt. You say that at the beginning of the book. No one thinks that. And it's not that we think these people are intending to do any damage. I don't think the people, when they marketed thalidomide, were trying to hurt hurt women and babies. Of course they weren't. They were trying to help. Yeah. But when they realized 
it was hurting, they stopped and mm-hmm. they changed what they were doing. Mm-hmm. And that's all you're trying to say with this book is, hey, look, you meant to do something really, really good, but in certain situations, it turns out really bad. So can we just take a step back here and maybe like speak into this again in a way that's clearer? So if you're in a relationship where things are tense, where emotional or physical abuse is happening, that that's a very different scenario and it has to be treated very differently. Mm-hmm. And you need to identify that kind of thing. Rather than putting a book out as the be all and end all to solve all marriage problems for marriages that are in crisis, that are in this, that are in that. To say like, look, this is where this book works really well. This is where, where this book doesn't work as well. Mm-hmm. And having the humility to say that that's the case would be so helpful. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just give those warnings. Okay. Here's something else about thalidomide. Thalidomide forced governments and medical authorities to review their pharmaceutical licensing policies. As a result, changes were made to the way drugs were marketed, tested, and approved both in the UK and across the world. One key change was that drugs intended for human use could no longer be approved purely on the basis of animal testing. Mm. Yeah. So just because it works on animals doesn't mean we can just give it to humans. Exactly. And I think what's happened for a lot of marriage books... What I would say is just because men like the advice <laughs> doesn't mean it's going to work for women. And, and you're right. That's, there's a lot of good stuff about that in medicine these days about how, you know, that's kind of that we, we test, test drugs on men and then we market mm-hmm. them to men and women. And we're learning in medicine that is not healthy and that's not appropriate. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, if we're going to be healthy in our marriages... The stuff that we recommend needs to be tested on both men and women, not just men alone. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And we just need to know what our outcome is that we're aiming for, right? Mm-hmm. A lot of these books might be really, really successful in getting women to put out more and divorce less. Yes. A lot of these books may have awesome rates of lower divorce and more sex. Mm-hmm. But is that actually a good outcome if it also has lower orgasm rates for her, higher rates of sexual pain, less emotional closeness during sex, feeling like her opinions and needs aren't don't matter as much as his? Mm-hmm. More you know, abuse. more Or even more abuse in some cases, right? And we didn't test whether or not we were yeah. abused. One thing that Gretchen... Ba- yeah, and we didn't do that because it would have triggered mandatory reporting. We were just and really was, worried about the ethics of it. And yeah. it wasn't... Yeah. yeah. Um, Gretchen Baskerville, who wrote The Life-Saving Divorce, one thing that she says is that... Um, and she has research on this, so I'll have to send you over to her site to find it. But Christian women experience more abuse, not because their husbands abuse more, mm-hmm. but because they put up with it. Mm. Yeah. So does, does that mean that like when a woman who's not a Christian is abused, she leaves faster? Yes. Is that what you mean? Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, and, and yeah. if you don't think a book is doing that, yeah. Okay. Then at least raise your voice in saying that is something we need to fix. Yes. Mm -hmm. If honestly, if your book's not the problem, okay, fine. But let's agree that women staying in abusive marriages longer is not a good outcome. Exactly. And we should all be working to make that stop. Exactly. And our goal and what we think the goal of all books that deal with marriage and sex should be Mm -hmm. is just that the people reading them are able to recognize, first of all, where they have been hurting their spouse potentially. Yeah. I think that's important. Yeah. But also validating where they may have been hurt. Mm-hmm. You know, I think these are important things. You know, helping people understand what does abuse look like? What does yeah. marital rape look like? And I know those yeah. are two harsh things. But mm-hmm. the happier things are this. Also that it inspires people to treat one another as Christ wants us to treat one another. That both partners are more satisfied and Absolutely. are more, you know, 
aware of how to meet each other's needs. Yes. And we're not talking where one person does all the giving and one person does all the taking. No. And the actual needs that are not gendered needs, mm-hmm. you know, both people have a need for sexual release. Yeah. Both people have a need to be emotionally close. Both people have a need for their opinions and their desires mm-hmm. to matter in their marriage. And also, we just want these books to help people have marriages that are life-giving, not life-draining. Mm-hmm. Your marriage is not successful based on how many years you stick it out miserable together. Your marriage is not more successful if you put up the, with the abuse for 18 more years than someone else did. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, our marriages are successful because they're a way that we can joyfully live out our vows together. Mm-hmm. But if someone is breaking those vows by mistreating you, by neglecting you, by abusing you, by, you know, all these different horrible ways that someone mm-hmm. can break their vows, the goal of a Christian marriage book should not be to teach someone how to push down their needs, push down their desires, push down mm-hmm. their rights that they were given in their marriage vows. Mm-hmm. The goal of a book should not be to simply keep people together, even if it means that one of them is miserable and having their life drained from them. Yeah. The goal of marriage books should be to set free, and that should mean together, if both people yes. are healthy, Christ-like people. But Christ, remember, the Christ who laughs does not look at you who is being abused, does not look at you who is married to a selfish, evil man or a selfish, evil woman. Mm-hmm. That Christ who laughs, the Christ who loves us, does not look at you and say, well, do you really matter as much as your marriage does, though? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you really matter? The Christ that we talk about in these books, the Christ that says that marriage is meant to just be this refining tool and isn't about your joy or your satisfaction, The Christ that says all of that kind of stuff. The Christ that says you need to become lesser so that your spouse can, their ego is safe. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't see that Christ in the Bible. I see the Christ who says, I long to gather you up under my wing like a mother hen. Mm -hmm. I see the Christ who says, is the Sabbath created for man or man for the Sabbath? Like that's the Christ that I see in scriptures. And that's not a Christ who tells a woman or a man that the way to be holy, the way to have me be proud of you is to push down everything about you and to minimize everything about you and to shut up and put out long enough that you can at least say I didn't get divorced. Well said. Okay, let me say something not quite as serious. Yes, okay. Well, it is. And I got something a little bit more okay. upbeat as well. So. Okay, well, mine's kind of serious. Then you can do the upbeat. Okay, okay, so you were talking about putting up with abuse and yeah. not getting divorced. The other thing that you mentioned earlier, which I just want to reiterate, is that another way that you can judge whether a marriage book is successful is like maybe wives just have more sex. Yeah. And what we did find is that all of our negative teachings, or at least three of them, I don't know, but the, the boys obligation were, sex. The obligation did. sex have sex so um, he won't watch porn. Yep. Even this one about lust, I think, they're all associated with women having more sex, with yep. more frequent sex. Mm. So when women who believe women. this, when you, threaten, <laughs> when you threaten women, they do have more sex. It's just very unsatisfying and marriage satisfaction goes yeah. down. Yeah. So if you're only judging it by how often women have sex, then yeah, it's doing its job. Yeah. But is that really the proper yeah. measure? Because I think most guys would rather have a little less sex that was a bit more fun and enjoyable for both everyone involved right Mm -hmm. the thing i was going to say is this is in the end i think what we're saying is that the one thing we know from scripture is that god uses the marriage relationship as an image of jesus relationship to the church Mm -hmm. christ and the church is meant to be the picture of the husband and the wife and i don't know about the christ that you serve and the church that you want to be in but i want to be in one that is joyful that is full of you know growth and 
and love and all the fruits of the Spirit. And to me, if you have a book that is teaching that, run to that book. If the book is teaching something other than that, then stay away from that mm -hmm. book because that's the picture. If the book says it's all about meeting physical release or he's going to go use porn, that's not a joyful picture of, of two people uniting the way that God intended. Look for those kind of things and, and run after those kind of things. That's guess what I would yeah. say. Okay, last thing about the litamide. Okay. One more thing. thing. One more thing. The yellow card scheme was set up for doctors to share previously unknown side effects of medications mm, they yeah. prescribed. Mm -hmm. The scheme has now widened so anyone can report a side effect. Yes. So what they realized was that they didn't have a centralized way of figuring out what these side effects were, so they didn't pick up on these problems with thalidomide early enough. And so now they have a way that everyday, regular people can report this stuff. And that's what we want to say, is like, what people think should matter. Yeah. It shouldn't just matter what the authors think, what the publishers think, what the powers that be think. Mm -hmm. You know, what the people in the pews think, what the people who read the books think should matter. And we're just hoping that we can get your voices heard. Yeah, mm. and that's what we were trying to do. And so we surveyed 20,000. And then yeah. we did interviews and focus groups with a bunch more. Did a follow-up survey of like over 1,500. Yeah. You know, we have emails from, I think, close to 1,700 women who are interested in doing focus groups and interviews. And we have a whole bunch 4, of men 4,000, actually. Oh, my goodness. 4,000. <laughs> yeah, but this is what we want to do is we want to give the voice to the people in the pews. Mm -hmm. Because you are the ones who are being affected, whether for good or for bad. And yeah. so isn't it time that you have a voice? People are really criticizing us for this, and in the next few weeks, you're probably going to hear some of that. But so I stay just, strong. Stay you matter. strong. You matter. <laughs> and I just want you to remember that, yeah, if they're criticizing the survey, then which of these teachings are they trying to hold on to? Yeah, and we just want you to know that for us, the well-being of the reader, the well-being of the average person who's just looking for help, how a book affects them will always matter more to us than the reputation of the person who did the harm. And I think that's how it should be. Yep. Okay, as we conclude, I want to read an email that came through last week. Oh, by the way, I just want to say the ending of the podcast last week. Yeah. Where we, you really fell apart and yes. I did as well. And the, just I, we just really thank you for all your support. We had so many messages, so many emails, so many everything. Um, we know you guys are here with us and sometimes we do feel very alone. There is a lot coming at us right now, but we really appreciate your support in your prayers and we know that you're there yeah. for us. So I want to read to you. Um, there were so many emails that came in. If I'm yes. not reading yours, it's not that we didn't appreciate it. Exactly. <laughs> it's just this one kind of encapsulated a lot of different things. And so I'm going to end the podcast with this. A woman wrote, I just finished listening to the new podcast where y'all fell apart. I guess she's from the South. Where y'all. Y'all is a great we, word. We love yeah. the Southerners. They're great. Uh, y'all should be a word, I yeah. think. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. where y'all fell love apart. You. We love y'all. I did too as I listened. You see, I've been a listener of the podcast since day one, and now I feel like I'm part of a deep conversation when I listen, like you and I are friends. Anyway, my heart hurts for all of you, but I'm also deeply, deeply grateful because I found your blog trying to sort through my husband's porn use, which it turns out is actually an addiction. Mm -hmm. Through your blog, I found Leslie Vernick and Natalie Hoffman when I finally realized I was being abused by my husband. I've experienced gaslighting and minimization of my pain at every turn in the Christian community related to my marriage. I feel very, very alone in many ways. So as I listened to you talk, I felt as though I was listening to many of my own cries. It seems to me that you are being so Christ-like whether you planned it or not. 
You're taking on the sorrows of those of us who have been abused and redeeming it with truth, and much more publicly than most of us can with all the blessings and curses that brings. I know that hearing that may not be helpful when you are hurting, but I feel that I owe you so much. Without your blog, I probably wouldn't be preparing to file for divorce in the next month as I plan to do. I would still be stuck in the old abuse cycle. So I want to help. I want to support you. I'm not sure what that will look like, but I just want you to know I'm behind you guys. That's so mm -hmm. sweet. Yeah. yeah. And what really saddens me is a lot of people will think that's a failure yeah. because she's getting divorced, yeah. but Jesus doesn't because he sees his daughter being rescued. And safe. And safe. And Jesus, that matters to him. And so you all matter to us. And thank you for standing strong with us. 